Well, good morning. Like I said, you're going to be a bunch of teenagers this morning. We have been working through the book of Philippians, and uh, today we are in chapter 4, verses 2 through verse 9. So a lot of times I'll have the teens actually read it with me. Let's see, I think we've got that up there, although all the fonts are different. Let's see, I do have fonts in a folder called fonts in my announcements folder. Just in case they didn't come over, I just forgot to check. So if you want to update those, you can. Otherwise, that might be hard to see, but we'll see. I forgot to do that. Sorry, Daniel. Um, Why don't you read with me? A lot of times I'll have teens do this. We'll read verses 2 through verse 9. That's what we'll be going over together. Now, we have a rule when it comes to reading as a group. Teens, our rule is what? That we don't sound like like robots, all right? So you have to read it with some kind of emotion. You have to read it with some kind of feeling. I don't want to sound like we're at a funeral dirge, all right? So Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, and it's okay if you have a different translation. You're welcome to either not read. If you don't want to read it, I'm going to read from the ESV, or just read whatever you have. That's just fine, all right? So let's all read together out loud. Ephesians, sorry, Philippians, 2, Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. All right, hopefully we're all clear now. All right, it starts with, I entreat... Yodia and Synthike, all right? If you want to skip those, you can. You can jump right in at verse 3, all right? Here we go. Let's start together. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Synthike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there isn't any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. All right, let's pray and ask for God's help as we work through this text together. Thank you so much for this warm appeal by this uh, apostle, Paul, who instructs not just our, our actions or even just our words, but our very thoughts, our minds, and fleshes out what it is to treasure Christ above all else. I pray that you would help us, that as we study this together, that you would change us. You would change us from the inside out. True change, uh, sincere change. We ask all of this in Christ's name. All right, well, teenagers, a lot of times I will give them handouts. So you might see on the PowerPoint up there, there will be things that will be underlined, and that's because they have things to fill in. So they can do that. If you really want a handout, I've got like three left, so you can come up afterwards and grab that from me, but uh, that keeps us on track. Now, I plan to start this morning with a bit of review, so you are at a distinct disadvantage, but I have a feeling you can keep up with this, okay? So let's kind of regather where we're at in the book of Philippians. And obviously, if you haven't been studying with us, if you're not a teenager, then you might need more catching up, but I think we can do it quickly. Does anybody remember where the Apostle Paul is when he writes the book of Philippians? You don't have to give me like a city, just a general location. Does anybody remember? Zoe? That's right, he's in jail, he's in prison, all right? One point for the teens, zero point for the adults right now, all right? I just want to say that. All right, he is there, he's in prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel. 
and he's writing back to people who live in a city called Philippi. Now, does anybody remember some of the people that he would have met in Philippi? In the book of Acts, we learned this. The teens have gone over this, parents, so you've got to be quick on the draw if you're going to try to beat them, all right? Does anybody remember anybody he met back in Philippi in the book of Acts? Zachary, is that a hand or a scratch? Oh, it's a scratch. Zoe again? Lydia, that's right. Two points for Zoe, zero points for teens, zero points for adults, all right? That's right. He met Lydia. She was this, uh, this worker with this purple dye and evidently was rich enough to have a whole household and have the church meet in her home. She had evidently lodging for the Apostle Paul and his fellow companions. But they ran into some trouble in that they saw a little girl who was being manipulated and used by a bunch of men to tell fortunes for others. And she was doing that because she was possessed by demons. And so Paul and his companions cast out these demons and the people were not happy. And so they threw Paul and Silas, and we don't know where Timothy was at this time, but likely he was in the city at least. Maybe he wasn't there at the moment. They threw him into prison. That night, Paul and Silas were singing in prison. They were rejoicing in spite of their harsh circumstances. And then something amazing happened. Does anybody remember? All right, Peyton, yes. Teens are on top of it. Yes, Peyton. Yeah, there was an earthquake, and God freed them all. But Paul and his companions didn't run away. Instead, they actually compelled all the prisoners to stay there. And while the jailer was about to take his own life, they stopped him. And he saw, had seen something in them that he had never seen before in his years of being a jailer. And that is that they treasured something more than life. More than their life, more than their comfort. And it was so effective that it actually changed even what the other prisoners did there. Well, he asks them, what can I do to be saved? And so they, they tell him to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he'll be saved. And that day, he is. And his whole household follows him in there. This is the people that Paul's writing to in Philippi. They've seen him go through trial and rejoice in spite of it. And this book, in a sense, is an appeal to be just like that, to treasure Christ above everything else so that even if life itself is at threat, you're okay. Not just okay, but you can rejoice. It turns the world on its head when you prize something outside of yourself that cannot change more than anything else. Now, one of the review questions I have here is, let's see if it'll come up to where you can read it. I don't know if it'll be big enough. Uh, if it doesn't, anyhow, I'll read it here. People treasure good but lesser things than Christ, all right? So what are some things that people treasure that might even be good things but that are less than Christ, all right? So I'll give you an example. Sometimes people treasure, treasure all right, or prize their own uh, reputation, and that becomes all important to them. That might be a good thing. It's a good thing to have a good reputation, right? Right, teens? All right, you don't want a bad reputation. But not above Christ. All right, another thing people might prize is life. It's a good thing to prize your life. You don't want to have people going around with some kind of death sentence on them, and they don't care if they live or die, right? However, when it's above Christ, you're not singing in a prison. And when the earthquake comes, you run and miss the opportunity for the gospel. So what are some other things that people prize that might even be good things? Maybe they're not, but might even be good things, but are less than Christ. All right, what are some things like that? Elaine? Friends, right? Are friends good? Yeah, friends are good, but not above Christ, right? What else? What, what else do people treasure above Christ? Yes, Peyton. All right, money, right? We do need money to live and exist, but not above Christ. Okay, good. What else do people treasure that might even be good, but not above Christ? Kirby, was that a scratch or a hand? 
Okay, family, there we go. And a lot of us feel the pull of that, don't we? Especially when you have family who comes into town and they're pulling on you, hey, spend time with me over maybe even your commitment to Christ or the church. It's very easy to feel like that's the, the right choice to do. All right? Anything else you can think of? Things people prize. Maybe health would be another one. People prize their health. All right? There's lots of things that people put as ultimately important. The problem is all of those things, although they're outside of us, they're dependent on circumstances, right? It doesn't matter how much money you have, how quickly can you lose all the money in the world? Like that, right? It doesn't matter how well you've taken care of yourself. It doesn't matter how well you eat, how well you exercise. How quickly can your health be taken from you? Like that, immediately, right? Now imagine if your identity is rooted to something like that, that's outside of you, but that can change in an instant. How about a family? To root your identity, to, to root what you value most in family, sounds fine and well when your family's fine. But how many of us have had friends or even have had our own experiences where family suddenly falls apart, whether it's internal strife or the death of a family member? And that can completely destroy your world. Friends. How many of us, even at a young age, suddenly had to move and our friends are just gone? And you have to start over with nothing. You can see how that would absolutely rock your world. And so many of us have had that happen to us. Or where friends you have have turned on you. The problem is when you root your highest values in things that can change in an instant, then your life is only that stable, isn't it? Well, Paul's whole point in this letter to the Philippians is this. Root your value, your highest value in Christ because he'll never, ever change. In fact, in, earlier in the book, Paul says, I might live or I might die, and either way, I'm happy. And in fact, he says, if I had to choose, my preference would be, does anybody remember? Teens or elsewhere. What does he say if he had to choose between life and death, Zoe? He said, I prefer death because it gets me closer to Christ. In other words, the thing that people fear the most, he says, that's the thing that I would rejoice in the most because then I get to be with Christ. What you value and what you fear are often the opposite sides of the same coin. If you value friends the most, then what you fear the most is losing those friends. And the thing is, is that can happen like that. Or your health, the same thing. Your reputation, the same thing. How you look to other people, family, all these things can switch in a moment. Paul says, if you value Christ, he's the only thing, the only person, that if you put all of your stake in him, if you put all of your highest value in him, then there is nothing you can fear because nothing can separate you from Christ, not even death. It's a pretty powerful message, and it's a message that they've seen him play out in front of them when he lived with them in Philippi. Now, he's talked a lot about how rejoicing in Jesus actually changes you, right? And that's a, another way to say that, to treasure Jesus above all else is to rejoice in him above all else. He's what I get the most joy out of. He's the one I care the most about. So if that's the case for you, if you say, you know what, I treasure Christ above all else, what are some things that that produces in you? Some of these I've already hinted at. What are some of the things that they produce in you? Now, you don't, if you didn't study the book of Philippians, you don't have to say stuff from the book. But teens, if you did and you can remember some of those things, you can point them out. What would it produce in you if you said, you know what, Christ is more valuable than anything else. He's the thing I treasure even above family and friends and these other things. All right? How would that change you? Yeah? All right, it would give you endurance. Yeah, patience. In fact, one of the ways Paul says this in chapter 3 is that it would help you to keep believing in him. 
yeah, a kind of enduring faith. Good. How else would it, might it change your daily experience? Yeah, and the fact that's what I've, we've emphasized a lot, isn't it, teens, where what Paul really wants is you to have so much rooted confidence and treasuring in Christ that your life can be stable even if it's up and down. You go to prison, it's okay. Somebody takes all your stuff, it's fine. You lose your health, it doesn't matter. I have Christ. So it actually gives you stability in spite of your circumstances. Throw whatever circumstances you want, throw death at me, Paul says, and I'll rejoice because I get to be with Christ. It actually gives you the kind of stability that we look to, friends, family, money, reputation, all these things. We look to those things for that, and Christ says, it's in me. All right, good. What else might it give you? This kind of stability, uh, we talked about kind of enduring faith. What else might it give you when it comes into relationship with other people? All right, even if you don't remember from the book of Philippians, if you haven't been studying it, you can actually creep back at chapter 2. That's a good starting point. All right, for some of those, the beginning part of chapter 2. There's a word I'm thinking of that starts with a U and ends with a, yes, Paul, or Paul, Peyton. <laughs> unity, that's the word. Yeah, I was going to say it starts with U and ends with entity. All right, there you go. All right, unity. In fact, this treasuring of Christ above all else really can negate all the kind of squabbles we have. Because let's say somebody speaks poor about you. It's okay. You don't treasure your own view that other people have of you more than everything else. So if Christ is praised, then that's fine. I can be, I can be treated poorly. It's okay. It, it actually produces a kind of unity that's characterized by humility. So we have the example of Christ in Philippians 2 who humbles himself, who puts other people's needs in front of his own. This is the kind of unity it produces. It has the kind of unity that prizes other people's comforts. All right, good. Anything else you can think of that this kind of um, perspective on Christ and his things has as an effect on your life? We've looked at ourselves. Oh, yeah, Steve? Yeah, peace. Good. And how does that peace play itself out in front of the watching world who doesn't know Christ? The world who doesn't know Christ, how might this kind of treasuring of Christ, what might this teach to other people just by observing you? What are some of the things they would pick up on? Right? Joy, yeah. That's one of the things, especially when you're going through hardships, um, that um, this kind of perspective on Christ does um, for other people. In fact, uh, you might remember, teens, back in chapter 1, verse 28, this kind of constant love for Christ and his things is actually a sign to unbelievers that they don't have it and that they'll be destroyed. He goes on in uh, chapter 3, and he speaks about how or uh, the end of chapter 2, and he speaks about how this same kind of thing actually proclaims Christ's value to the unbelievers as well. So these are some of the things that we've been learning so far, and chapter 4 is a continuation of a lot of that. So hopefully you feel generally caught up that Paul's basic point in this letter is to say, treasure Christ, value Christ, rejoice in Christ above everything else, and you really will have the kind of life that cannot be interrupted by harsh circumstances, that cannot be disrupted by anything physical or emotional being taken from you because you have Christ. He wants us to have this kind of joyful stability, and it's only possible in Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 then, he starts to kind of flesh this out in a real-life scenario. So this first section that we're actually officially going over today now, I'm just titling Rejoicing Breeds Unity. 
All right, it starts out where Paul calls out to women. All right, how would you like to have your names eternally written in God's book because you couldn't get along? All right, uh, Yodiki and Syntyche here, these two uh, ladies. He says he urges them to agree in the Lord, and that's their command that they're given. Now, the word agree is a, kind of an interesting one. Uh, it's, it's a word that actually means to think a certain way, and it's a word that's super common in the book of Philippians. It's one of the ways we know that Paul's not starting a new thought. He's continuing what he's been talking about the whole way. So I want you to look with me uh, at verse, verse 2. He says, agree in the Lord. However, look with me just briefly at verse uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Um, he says, I've received your concern for me. Now, those seem like completely different words, but it's actually the same word, their thoughtfulness towards him. And it's not a word that's, con- that's uh, absent to the book. And when he first starts talking about the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I think a certain way about you. And he uses the same word. He says, I think a certain way about you. When you go at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and that affection and sympathy has this same idea, this thinking towards each other in a certain kind of way. Chapter, uh, verse 2 as well, he says, be of the same mind. That's the same word. Think this kind of way. Uh, verse 5, it's the same word. Have this kind of thinking, this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15. He says, uh, let those of us who are mature think the way I'm talking about, which is treasuring Christ above all else. This kind of mindset needs to be in place. So when he gets to chapter 4, verse 2, he says, hey, ladies, you need to also adopt this mindset. Except the idea seems to be more towards each other. Towards each other, you need to say, you know what? We disagree, and we may never agree, but we both are going to treasure Christ above all else so that it's going to be okay between the two of us. In other words... He's calling them out for a kind of perspective on what they value. And he's saying this, you all are valuing your own way more than Christ, and I want you to adopt a different kind of thinking. I want you to think just for a moment how this plays itself out in our local church. I'm not thinking, asking you to think of specific scenarios where you're at odds with people. I'm just saying when we have people together who are Christians. It's very true that a lot of times God has gifted us in different ways with different skill sets. Some of us, for instance, are horrible at drywalling, and some of us are great. Uh, Bob's here with us for the next 10 days, and I've made my first of many apologies to him for the, for the horrors I've caused him over the next 10 days. But we all have different skill sets, don't we? We have different opinions on things. We have different experiences where we've seen a certain action have a consequence that others may not foresee. Those kinds of differences can often breed disunity, except in the case where we say, you know what, I treasure Christ above all else. So maybe you offer your perspective or you offer to help or you have a certain way you would do it and somebody else chooses to do something else. What matters more in that moment? It's very practical what Paul's saying. It's it's the way you think about it. Are you going to sit there and stew on their thinking or maybe make a comment to somebody else hoping that they will then join your side? It's actually the way we think, isn't it, that affects the way we actually interact with each other. When you treasure Christ above all else only is this unity possible. He then calls on their local pastor to help. This is likely who he's speaking about in verse 3. He says that, yes, I also ask you, true companion, all right, likely speaking to his, the fellow pastor there in the, in the church at Philippi. He says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are also written in the book of life. 
And notice that he does call them some things. He calls them side laborers, people who labor alongside you, all right, like yoked together. Fellow workers, this is related to the term he calls this man true companion. And he says um, they are, their names are written in the book of life. All right? He confirms that they're actually Christians. He's not calling that into, a, into question. What he's saying is you're not acting like you treasure Christ above all else. That's at the center of what it means to be a Christian, that Christ is more valuable to me than anything. So he's saying to these ladies and now to this pastor and now to the church, together, all of you have to adopt this kind of mindset. This is the only way that true unity is possible. Now, unity doesn't mean unanimity. He doesn't ever ask them here to say, place aside your perspectives on things. You're not allowed to disagree about anything. He simply says this, Christ has to be more important than you or your perspective. And that's the case for us as well. This kind of treasuring of Christ above all else, in other words, it filters down all the way to the way that we just casually interact with each other. And this is Paul's point. All throughout this letter, whether it's being in prison and treasuring Christ so much that you could sing when you should be scared, to simply having a disagreement with somebody in the church, this kind of perspective on Christ affects everything. I might ask, it, I might ask a question that would reveal for you how this might play out in your life, and that's simply this. What do you value or want most? Now, I'm not very good at answering those kinds of questions. I know what I should, but I'm not sure. So how would you tell what you value most? Well, wouldn't you pay attention to what you think about? And that's, that's really what Paul's talking about, this mindset all throughout the book. He says this, that if you are occupied mentally with Christ and his things above everything else, if your gut reaction to when hardship comes is, does this get me closer to Christ or give me an opportunity to go towards Christ, then you would know I'm treasuring Christ. Now, I think most of us would say, you know what? That's probably not the case for me. It's a mixture of things, isn't it? Well, Paul has already told us once in this letter that he wants them to continue growing in love, continue growing in this perspective on Christ. They're at a certain point, and he wants them to continue in that. And you and I are at the same thing. It's a, it is a spectrum, and you're somewhere within that zone. What Paul wants you to do today is to really say, I'm going to adopt a certain kind of mindset. And this kind of mindset is going to say, Christ is more valuable to me than anything else. And that affects even the ways that we interact with each other. This rejoicing in Christ alone then breeds unity. Or we could say it another way. If you have disunity with others, it's probably because one or both of you is prizing yourself or your own needs over Christ and his. Rejoicing uh, in Christ changes also changes your heart. And he gives this central command, which is really a command that's been echoed all throughout the book and illustrated all throughout the book, and that's simply this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And he repeats it for emphasis. You've heard Pastor Greg say that they didn't have italicized words or they didn't have underlining that they would use. The way they would emphasize things is by repeating them. We did the same thing to some, de to some degree, but not as much as they would have done. So for him to call out, again, I will say to you, rejoice. What he means by that is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in God's things. Treasure Christ above everything else. This is the center claim of the entire book. Now, again, he's going to flush this out into how it actually changes us. So when you have somebody who treasures Christ above all else, we already know from what Paul said that it affects the way we interact with each other, especially other Christians. We say, you know what? We disagree. And we may never agree, but it's okay. We'll find a common at ground because we both treasure Christ above all else. We might both have to give in some, or I might have to give in fully. But whatever happens, as long as Christ is praised, I'm okay. 
But now he's going to get down to some other perspectives, not only what it produces in that kind of unity, but also he says this in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It produces gentleness, all right, to all. This word, reasonableness, is a word that was often used for, like, uh, a mother taking care of her little ones. It produces a gentleness towards each other. This is, we could say, another way of saying what he said to these women. When you treasure Christ above all else, when when your reputation, when your identity isn't rooted in whether or not you get your way in that particular situation, then it produces in you a kind of gentleness towards others. This Christian virtue of being gentle, especially towards other people, but here he says to all, to everyone, it is something that you can almost smell on someone, isn't it? He says, let it be known to all. In other words, it's such a characteristic of you that when people get near you, that's, that is one of the words they use towards you. Now, this doesn't really jive super well with our whole American perspective on independence, does it? We, we kind of like, especially in the West, to be kind of our own people. We like to have a little bit of an edge on us. And some of us might even make that part of our identity. This is just who I am. It's my personality. Paul's not saying here that we should all adopt the same personality. What he is saying is whatever your perspective, your personality, that there should be underlying that personality a gentleness towards others. Now, just because you're quiet by by personality doesn't mean you're gentle, does it? You can be quiet and the whole time underneath be very, very, very critical of others. That's not gentleness. That's just a quiet personality. You can be very open and flamboyant, but yet there's a gentleness towards others. We're underlying all of that personality. You really are gentle towards other people in the way you think about them, your perspective on them. It's where you use that personality for their benefit, not to draw attention to yourself, not to push them aside, but to actually call them in, to bring them into your life, to use their gifts in your life. This is not a personality request of Paul. This is a fruit of the Spirit. And this fruit of the Spirit plays itself out in all the little intricacies of how God has made us. So I want you to think about the way that you, back to the word, think about other people. Is your fundamental posture towards people gentleness? Do you give them the benefit of the doubt? When somebody doesn't come through on their word, is your first thought, well, that seems just like them. Or why do I always have to do everything? Now, you may never say a word because you may be a very timid person, but you can see how you're not gentle in that moment. So if that's the case, what's the fix? Let's get back to Paul's main command. The fix is not for you to think, be more gentle, be more gentle, be more gentle. That's not actually the fix. That's not going to help you. What's the fix? Rejoice in the Lord, right? It's one thing that produces the other. It's the root that produces the flower. You can't say, I don't have the flower, therefore, I'm just going to think really hard about getting the flower. No, you've got to go to the root. Paul says that the thing that rejoicing in the Lord, treasuring Christ above everything else produces in you towards others, is gentleness. Now, isn't that just the way the gospel comes at us? The gospel really says this, I deserve God's wrath. I do. I've never done one thing that earns favor with God. And in spite of that, even while I was sinning against God, while I hated him, he chased me down with his love and his kindness. And he rescued me by the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. 
So I stand complete in him because of nothing I've done. I have nothing I've deserved here. So if somebody wrongs me, that's how I was. And Christ rescued me. It's okay. You see how it's actually this treasuring of Christ and even embedded in the gospel is this whole perspective on other people. Like the man who had been forgiven much and then went and rang out his servant's or a friend's neck who had owed him a little bit. It doesn't connect with the gospel. It's actually people who treasure Christ and his work on their behalf who have an innate gentleness towards other people. So he says he produces this, this gentleness or this reasonableness. This is the, the term here. He also says um, that the Lord is at hand. And some of the point there, meaning that part of your perspective on Christ is he's so at hand, both in the fact that he could return, but likely in the fact that mentally you're, you're so focused on him that you're doing whatever you're doing towards other people in his presence. We could say it like this, the Lord is before, or you are before the Lord's face. That would be a very Old Testament way to say this. Then he says, it also produces in us a lack of anxiety, all right? It produces prayer, not anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You might say, okay, well, we're talking about all this unity stuff and being gentle towards other people, but the fact is that I still have needs, and, and I'm bothered by what's going on. It's not enough, then, just to be gentle towards people and say, well, I guess all the world's going to blow up, and we'll just have to watch it burn, all right? That's the kind of anxiety he's not after. No, instead, he says that you should be full of prayer. Now, how does this perspective on Christ and the valuing of who Christ is produce prayer and not anxiety? Well, it's only true if Christ is a certain kind of Christ, if he's a certain kind of person. So what are the characteristics about when you treasure Christ that you see in him that cause you not to be anxious? What characteristics might we see in Christ when we treasure him that say, I don't have to be anxious? I'll give you one. He's in control, right? If you treasure Christ, you start to recognize he's completely sovereign. All right, so let's open it up. What are some other things that you would see when you start treasuring Christ that you would say, this is why I don't have to be anxious? All right, what are some other things you'd see in him? Yeah. Never changes. Take my life, take my health, take my everything, and Christ will still be the exact same. No power can overtake him. Nobody can thwart his plans. Yeah, great. What else? What else might you see in Christ? Yeah, Peyton? Yeah, he's glorious. He's weighty. He's more significant than anything else going on. Rule, power, rule, rulers and world governments rise and fall, and he's still always in command. He's more weighty and glorious than all of them combined. Good. What else might you see when you start to treasure Christ like this that cause you not to be anxious? Yeah. And that's how we interact with other relationships where we know people care about us. If we have questions about something, but like, for instance, if Megan and I have something going on and I'm not sure exactly what she's doing, I'm, if I have this fundamental conviction that she's for my good, I don't have to know all the whys if I know that. A lot of times with Christ, because we don't really treasure him above else, we're suspicious of his love towards us. We demand to know the whys before we submit to him. And so some of that demanding comes out in anxiety. But if you know Christ really loves you like this, it's okay if you don't know everything because you know this. He's loving towards me. He's for my good. You can see how this treasuring of Christ is what produces in us prayer. Prayer then says this, God, I need you. God, I'm not in control. 
God, I'm not the most important thing here. You're the most glorious one here. God, I'm not all-knowing. You are. Prayer actually declares these kinds of things. It, It is, in a sense, another flower of this kind of treasuring of Christ. Whereas anxiety is a telltale sign that Christ is not your treasure. Now, some of us are more prone to that than others. Isn't that true? Or maybe we're just more prone to the way it's expressed than others. There's a lot of people who may not show signs or speak of being anxious because they try to grab control. They might say, I'm not an anxious person. I just get control of every situation. That's still anxiety with a different name. We all, when we reach out for things with control or with anxiousness in our hearts, well, we over-meticulously plan everything. This is a telltale sign that something is sitting in Christ's throne. And the problem with that, when it comes to our daily life, is that it makes our life like this, doesn't it? And Paul wants our life to be like this. He wants stability, and there's only one way you get stability. All right, let's continue for sake of time. We need to hurry. I always go late downstairs, so we're going to go late up here too, all right? I think we'll be good, all right? It produces internal peace, both with God and with others. And so far, he's been talking about others, but now he turns his attention more to God and the peace of God, which surpasses... All understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. And notice there, he's using actually a word that's related to the word he used earlier about agreeing, your minds, your way you're thinking. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you treasure Christ above everything else, then God produces this actual peace to where even when life is rocky, even when you're in prison, even when people are persecuting you like he's talked to the Philippians about, there's actually a stability, an underlying stability. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the kind of life that every person wants. Every person. Don't we want a life that could be described like this? A life of just peace, where it's okay. Nothing can can disrupt it. Now, the irony is we chase after that peace with a lot of different things. Some of us chase after that peace by just going after whatever pleasures seem to hit us in the moment. Others of us chase after that peace by trying to be absolute, this is probably the wrong term, but like a control freak about everything. We're just super detailed and organized, and as long as I'm in control, then everything's going to be okay. Some of us go after peace by trying to super guard our reputations or build around us a, a society of friends. Some of us go after this kind of peace and calmness in our own life by, um, by the things that we treasure monetarily, to say, hey, like as long as I have this in the bank, then I'll be okay. All of those things, though, like we started with, are fleeting. They can all change like that. Paul says there's really one way to get this. It's to treasure Christ above everything else because he's the only one who never changes. He's the only one who's more weighty than everything else. He's the only one who, in the end, even after death itself, will be there. And you know what happens? Does God say, now because you treasure me, your life will be miserable? (laughs) He doesn't do that. He actually gives you the life everyone wants in the first place. That whole idea of having a a life that everyone would envy or want is the word blessed. That's the word blessed in the Old Testament. Blessed is the man. Or in the New Testament in in Matthew chapter 5. This blessed life only, only, only comes to the person who says, Christ above all else. Not my kids, not my reputation, not my money, not my popularity. Christ above all else. So rejoice in the Lord. If you say, you know what, I am anxious. Or you say, you know what, I... I I am not at peace with other people. I am not a gentle person. I don't have peace with God or with others. I don't have this kind of peace that comes from God. 
the solution is not to sit there and think about how you want it. The solution is to go back to the central command. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what produces all this. All right? Uh, finally, um, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And here, he's still after our mental thinking. So spend your mental time, I forget, uh, your mental money, I think is how I phrased that. Your mental money on God and his things. And I, and I mean that um, as, a, as, a, as a, an analogy of sorts. You really do only have so much mental space, don't you? Only so much mental currency. And a lot of times what we'll do is we'll dole out our currency to all of these lesser things. I spend an hour just thinking about how like this situation is blown up and what I'm going to do about it. And what Paul's saying is you're actually spending money. It's like you've gone to a market every day you're awake, every moment you're awake, and you're spending money at, at booths. And he says this, what you need to do is think about only these kinds of things. And here, the idea seems to be that he's talking about you need to think on God. God is the person who is honorable and true and just and pure and lovely and commendable. And on his things like this. So spend your mental capital, your mental money on God and his things. And then lastly here, for sake of time, and I forget because I don't have this blank filled in, so you're going to have to fill it in for me. You can click the next one. There we go. Pattern in your heart. Oh, there we go. After Paul's pattern. I wasn't sure if I was going to say his or what because I just have the blank ones. Normally I have it on my phone where I can see both. He says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, all the way from Philippi, all the way now to this letter, they have seen this in Paul. Throughout this letter, he's continually talked about the place he's in, he's in and in spite of that place, rejoicing in Christ above all else, having peace, having joy. When he describes his own interaction with them and his interaction with God in this letter, you come away saying, like, I kind of wish I was like Paul. And so he ends here saying, pattern yourself after this. You've seen it in me. You saw it in me when I was in the jail. where Even that didn't disrupt my life. They cast me away. Fine. It's okay. Did you see that kind of stability in me? That kind of joy, that settled joy and peace? Talk about being... Um, having hostility between him and others. He tells us in, in, I think it's chapter two, or chapter one, that others saw that he was in prison and tried to take advantage of that to boost their own social clout in the Christian circle. Paul says that happened. And he says, it's okay. If Christ is magnified, I rejoice. So Paul has demonstrated this, what he's taught today. He's demonstrated that throughout his life with them, throughout the letter here. And now he says, pattern yourself after that. God has, in a way, put Paul up as a pattern for us. This is not the only time this is done in the book, uh, in the books of the Bible, that Paul has placed up as a pattern for us to say, you know what, that's, that's how I want to pattern my life. The secret is not being cer a certain kind of personality or having a certain intellect. The secret is treasuring Christ above everything else, rejoicing in him above everything else. Imagine having your anchor to a rock that can't move. That's what Paul wants for you. All right, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Thanks for your time. God, thank you so much for uh, this uh, little book that tells us how to have the kind of, status, uh, kind of uh, stability that we all desire in life, the kind of peace and gentleness uh, of a life that everyone ultimately wants. And ironically, it doesn't come by prizing our own things above everything else, or prizing our own uh, reputation, our own pleasure above everything else. The only person that this kind of life comes to the only blessed person is the one who treasures you above everything else. 
So help us if we are full of anxieties or if we are full of our own worries, if we are um, sharp with others, if we don't have peace, if we aren't full of unity, help us to treasure Christ above all else and so find our joy and satisfaction in Him so that it produces in us all of these flowers. We ask this in Christ's name.